0: it's time to get real with robin join veteran broadcaster robin cote and her co-hosts known as the collective as they delve into subject matters that most are afraid to talk about but need to hear and now get ready to get real addiction it can take many forms Drugs, prescription medication, alcohol, sex, gambling, the list goes on. Addiction can tear apart families and leave so much destruction in its wake. I've seen it firsthand with friends of mine whose families were gutted by some members enabling the addict, while others chose to shut the door on them. For my family, it was a gambling addiction with my father. We didn't even realize the severity of his problem until after he died, My mother was brokenhearted and a bit pissed off to learn that he threw away so much of their money on his addiction, leaving her with nothing. I've also had several friends who struggled with alcohol and drug addiction, eventually losing their battle and succumbing to the illness that held them prisoner for so long. Overdoses are the number one cause of accidental death in our country. Over 81,000 overdose deaths occurred in the United States, From June 2019 through May 2020. That's the highest number of overdose deaths ever recorded in a single year. Overdoses kill more of us than breast cancer, guns, and car crashes combined. Synthetic opioids like fentanyl are the biggest drivers, but the use of stimulants like cocaine and methamphetamines is also on the rise. From 2013 to 2018, the rate of cocaine overdose deaths tripled. During the COVID pandemic, this tragedy has gotten worse. In some communities, overdose-related emergency calls are up as much as 40%, and 42 states reported increases in overdose deaths during the pandemic. And it's not just overdoses taking lives. In 2018, more than 175,000 deaths in the United States were related to alcohol and other drugs. That makes substance use the third largest cause of death in the nation. My co host knows these stats all too well. She has had her own dealings with addiction, having experienced her first drunk at the young age of 11 and her first DUI at 19. Donna Alexander has been sober since 2008, and she has gone on to help others by not only sharing her story, but she is actively involved with their recovery journey as the community outreach director for the past 11 years at the Southwest's largest substance abuse treatment organization, Crossroads Addiction Rehabilitation. She is also the co host of Recovery on Air. It's a podcast that I am proud to produce. And it gets real about breaking the stigma of addiction. Hi, Donna. How are you?
1: I am good, Robin. Thank you so much for having me on to be able to share my story and give some people out there some hope.
0: You know, I got to tell you, listening to your story and seeing that you started this journey at the age of 11 and experienced your first drunk I can't even imagine. I mean, I know we did desert parties and stupid stuff when we were teenagers, but I was like more like 13 or 14. So what was it that had you in that position at the young age of 11 to experience your
1: first drunk? You know, in my lifetime, I have had so much trauma in my, in my years, you know, spiritual, physical, emotional abuse. And by the time I was age 11, I already felt like I didn't fit in anywhere. And we had been living with my mother. My, okay, so here's where the story really starts in the first grade. So we had our mom and dad, who were best friends with a couple. They had three girls. My mom and dad had three girls. So we all used to do things together. They'd play cards. We'd play with the, each other, you know. And along about, I think it was about first grade, these two couples divorced. And they married each other. Oh, wow. So now we have these people that were our best friends. Now they're our sisters. And then my dad goes on to divorce their mother and marries their aunt. So, I mean, it's just like when I try to tell this part of my story, this convoluted family tree thing, I need like a whiteboard so I can make little diagrams <laughs> and show where So much dysfunction would, already. So much. And so that's where, so that stuff had already gone on by time we went to my dad's house. And this now my stepmother, the first lady's sister, um, in, in Texas, we went for a visit. And she had two boys and a girl. And then there was my older sister and myself. And talk about not feeling like you fit in anywhere. You know, they had been living there. Now my dad's there. This um, woman was probably the most vicious human being I've ever met in my life. She was extremely abusive um, verbally and physically. And, you know, when I first had that drunk, though, it wasn't even about that. It was about fitting in. And, you know, I remember even then doing anything that I could to change the way I felt I used to go down in the garage and take a little glass jar with me and siphon gas out of my stepbrother's motorcycle and take it up to my closet so I could huff the fumes. Oh, wow. I mean, it was that bad already at the age of 11. That's what I was doing. You know, it, um, it led into so much more. That's when my first touch with sexual abuse started happening because now we've got the stepbrother, we've got the stepbrother's friends. You know, I'm 11, and it just went from there. And so then, of course, they're going to give me alcohol. They taught me how to smoke pot out of a pop can, you know, all of those kind of things. And I did them all. You know, I would still, any kind of pills that I could see, I mean, I was taking thyroid pills, for God's sake, because I didn't know what they were. I'm 11, you know, 11 and 12.
0: And you couldn't go to anybody because there's so much dysfunction going on with the parent's doing their own love life and not really paying attention to the kids. That's what it sounds like. And they're just doing their own thing. And you're trying to find a place where you actually can belong and be heard. And that's the hardest thing when you're a child is when you have all of this convoluted crap going on, you can't even use your voice to be heard because no one's listening.
1: Right. Nobody was listening. Plus, my dad was very taken with this woman. You know, he was very taken with her and he worked. A lot, because he's got a family of, what, six other people besides himself he's trying to support. So he's out working, like, a lot. And so she's at the house. She was also, I am totally convinced today, addicted to pills. I'm not sure what they were, whatever was going on there. But she would lay in the bed all day long, and she would make lists for me and my older sister, mostly a little bit to her daughter, but mostly the two of us. So we took care of everything, the cooking, the cleaning, the laundry, the grocery shopping, all of that. And then right before my dad would get home, she would get up and get all gussied up and make it seem as though she'd been doing this for years. My dad had no idea because she was very good at keeping us separate. She did not let us have time alone with our father.
0: That's very manipulative to do that, especially, you know, it takes you back to the whole thing with Cinderella, the stepmother making the the girls do the work and her taking credit for it that's just I I can't even imagine what kind of a lifestyle that is to be in the middle of and and you're trying like hell to belong somewhere and you would think that this woman who's with your dad would actually be a good role model but she's not she's actually the slave
1: driver of the house oh she was absolutely incredibly brutal you know and then I mean, it kept going like that. We ended up actually moving to Cottonwood, Arizona. And that continued. So my sister, my older sister, kind of started fighting back a little bit. And she ran into a preacher's son who was just her friend. And she started kind of hanging out there. And I remember walking into my sister's room once, and this stepmom was on top of her with her knees on my sister's arms just bashing her in the face. Blood was flying everywhere. You know, and it was at that point that this stepmom and my dad decided to send my sister away to her brother's house, who was supposed to be some, he was a real, mm, whatever you want to call it, Southern Baptist kind of good, nothing against Southern Baptist, just that this is what he did. And when she got there, all of a sudden she started finding birth control pills in her drawers and booze in her closet and all of this kind of stuff, and... Um, She didn't last very long there, and she went back to where my mom was. But when she left, then I was all alone. And all that stuff fell to me. And I was responsible for a household of seven at the age of 12 and partially 13.
0: And in the midst of all of this, you're being sexually
1: abused. Right. And at at 12... um, When I started my first period is when I was raped.
0: Did your dad ever find out about these things going on?
1: He knows some of it now. It's a really painful thing for him. And I think it's because he's one of those tough guys need to protect the woman folk. And I think that he just can't really accept it. He's heard my story somewhat now. And he told my sister, she said she started drinking when she was 11. That's bullshit. My sister's like, um, no, it wasn't because I was there and I was drinking too. And so it's really difficult for him. To, I mean, he's 81 years old now. Right. I have a tenuous relationship with him. Um, I can be around him now. I think that he had, you know, as oftentimes when parents are like they are, they've had their own past their own childhood and my dad's was not pretty you know so in my heart i need to just forgive and move past that that's been one of my things about my recovery is the different stages of forgiveness and you know there's some things you're never going to forget
0: you're not supposed to forget otherwise mm-hmm. you don't learn the lessons from it and it's, it's i tell this to people often they think that forgiveness means you have to sit in front of the person and cry your eyes out and say, I forgive you. And that's, that's a load of shit. I had a bad childhood too. I had a father that really wasn't there for me, even though my parents are still married and he just recently died, but I had to forgive. And I, like I said, I, I've told this to people all the time. I never sat in front of him and said that I didn't have to, because it's inside of us. We have to be able to find that place where, we let go of certain things in order for our own healing because if we hang on to that anger that frustration that hurt that they've in, embedded in our in our soul it eats away at us we can get illness from it and everything else and it's you can never forget those experiences because that's what shapes us as human beings and it also is our is our warning sign that we if we see that happening again we know to get away from it and I can only imagine how tough that was for you growing up in that environment. And what was your relationship like with your mom? Did she know what was happening with with you and everything going on with your
1: sister? She did not. So this is is how we ended up staying. We were only supposed to go for a visit during the summer. And so my older sister went to my dad and stepmom and told them that my stepfather, our stepfather, was molesting her. So, of course, then it's on we're staying, you're not going back there, which was the right thing to do. But what my dad didn't understand is how much abuse was also going on in his household. And I think that once she knew that we were trapped, if you will, that we weren't going anywhere, it escalated to where she didn't have to be the nice person anymore. It wasn't a visit anymore. Now you're here. you know. Now you need to do all of this. And then that's when it really began was after that. And we were probably only there like a month when that happened. So my mom, she's a very passive kind of a person anyway. And again, their past play a part in what happens with them, you know, and my mom married my dad early, you know, and then whatever happened in their marriage, and then this whole crazy divorce kind of thing that happened. So she did not know the extent. Of what was going on, because we were not allowed to have contact with her. Huh. So, you know, she found out later, I actually, um, one of my teachers, because what, what my stepmom would do is she would take that list of all those chores that I had, and she would give me the list, like, in the morning that I needed to get these done, especially, like, on a Saturday, on a weekend, And this is what I needed to do. Well, when I told her that list was done, she would take it and literally with a white glove, she would inspect everything that I did. And if there was anything wrong with it, oh, well, you deserve one lick for this. Oh, this is five licks. And you miss this? Then we're going to do this many licks.
0: Wait a second. Licks by spanking or... Swats. Oh, my God. you got to be kidding me.
1: Mm -mm. And so this last time... I guess I must have not been in a very good place because I really screwed up that housework because I had 77 SWATs coming. That's
0: extremely excessive.
1: Yes. That, that's, that's abusive. Yes. And it was a board that had holes in it.
0: Uh, the, we used to call it the waffle board yeah. at school because that's what the principal would threaten us with. Yep, I can't believe that. That doesn't make... See, that's what I don't get you know, even though our parents or even the other people that were in your life as parental figures, even though they came from a tough background, you think that they would change their behavior and become a better parent because I'm not going to do the same thing to my children that were done to me. But I see this so often that parents use that as a fallback and they say, well, I got my ass beat as a kid and I'm going to do the same to you, which doesn't make any sense to me because Yes, our parents can do shitty things to us when we're children, but it's our responsibility when we become adults to become a better person and to work through all that shit so that we don't continue that generation by generation. We're supposed to break the cycle, but so many parents get caught up in it that they continue that cycle for generations moving forward, and then it falls upon people like me and you to try to work through all that shit and figure out that their demons are not ours and we have to let that go, and we have to become better people for it but i can't even I can't even imagine what it's like to be in a situation where you don't even have a safe place to go because usually when parents divorce, the children have to find a place where it's safe, either one parent or the other feels safe to them. But with you and your sister, you couldn't go with Mom because of the sexual abuse by the stepdad, and you couldn't even go with your dad because he wasn't privy to what was happening and the stepmom and the stepbrothers were doing things. I can't even imagine what kind of a minefield that had to be with both of you living through that. I can understand why you'd be drinking at the age of 11.
1: Yep. And, and you know, that continued for me with that kind of stuff. So, so what happened then was I always kind of felt like school was safe. So I had this, this one teacher, and we're in Cottonwood at this point, and I had this one teacher, and I went to school one day, and I was trying to sit, and I could not even though I had my jacket wrapped around me and I just told her I need to stand in the corner. And so she allowed me to do that. But at the break, she took me up to the nurse and they looked at me and they called CPS and they came over from Prescott. I believe it was the next day. And they and this is how warped this stuff was all these years ago because this is, I'm not going to age myself, but mm-hmm. it's quite a while ago. Um, so they came over and looked at my injuries and they left me at school, but they went and talked to her and sent me home that night. Oh no. Yeah.
0: Right back into the minefield.
1: And it was not pretty because now my dad's pissed because the law, if you will, have been called in. So they hid me because the CPS people said she better be at school tomorrow. And they hid me at a neighbor's house and had my mother send a bus ticket to send me back to Wyoming. So my sister by then was already there again. So I get back to that household. And just like we've already discussed, it was from one hell hole to the next, because even though everything had happened because he was, the stepdad was molesting my sister. It had just started up again once she came back, you know, and I knew something was wrong. Plus I, I knew about it from being in Texas and now I know about it here So then I'm doing anything and everything. My mom had a ceramic shop downstairs and I used to steal the spray that you would spray on the pieces after you've got them painted. I don't know how many cans of that stuff, but I was huffing everything. I was drinking everything. I was smoking as much pot as I could get my hands on, you know, anything to change the way that I felt. Right, I would do. That's the
0: biggest misconception. A lot of times people don't understand with any type of addiction, usually it starts out with, I just need to numb this pain and I need to find something that's going to do it. And a lot of times there's just certain things that don't work. And for me, I had no self-esteem whatsoever. I've often thought that I was a sex addict, but I know that that runs different parallels. But with me, when I say being a sex addict, I found myself after my my first couple bad marriages with domestic abuse and sexual abuse and being raped. I just found giving myself away. You know, I gave myself away one too many times, whether it was friends with benefits, one night stands. I was sober and I was doing that because, you know, and I used to say to myself, quote unquote, that this was just me and my sexual exploration because I was married too young and I was only with one person before I got married. So, or I actually was raped before I got married too. So I didn't really have a whole lot of sexual experience. So I just coined that phrase for many years that I was just in my sexual exploration stage. But when I sit back and think about it now in my 50s, I gave myself away one too many times. So in a way, I felt like I was a sex addict because I wanted that love and that approval. And with most men, you got to take your clothes off and have sex with them to get love and approval because you don't really understand it in your teens and twenties going into your thirties. You think that's what it is. You think, Oh, he wants me. He wants to be with me. But a lot of times it's just one and done and they're gone. So I had my own sense of an addiction and, and that was the way I numbed The pain was taking my clothes off and fucking men because it made me feel good about myself that somebody wanted me physically. And in the end I was just left there going, well now what do I do? And I've seen it so often with addiction that you have to you you come down off the high and it hurts like hell so you have to keep the high going in order not to feel the physical pain but again it's there to numb what you're going through and my god to expect a child at your age to endure everything that you had gone through and continued to go through I can understand why you were doing those things because you have to find a way to live each day and other than Did it ever enter your mind that you didn't want
1: to live? Oh, many times. I was just thinking as you were talking about that. I remember one time when I was living in Albuquerque where I got my first DUI. Drunk, crying. So I was a crier. I would get drunk and I would cry and I would hide and I would do all this stupid shit. And I remember crossing the street once and this guy almost hit me. And he rolled down his window and said, you need to watch where you're going. I almost hit you. And I said, I don't care. And he said, yeah, but I do. Wow. And I was like, holy smokes. You know, because I never thought about how anybody else felt. I was so much in my pity pot, you know, woe is to be me kind of mentality that it didn't occur to me what would happen to that man had he hit me and injured or even killed me. That would have stuck with him for the rest of his life. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, in, in that mind frame that I was in, though, I just did not care. I did not care about me. I did not care about anybody around me. And it, it was very painful. And, you know, you. so I continue on through life. I end up meeting a guy in Albuquerque. I end up marrying him. He's my first husband. I have two children with him. We're great friends now, but, you know, we went through our trials and tribulations, too, because he also is self-proclaimed alcoholic. So he's also does not drink any longer. Um, So we had, you know, obviously a lot of turmoil going on in that relationship. And with we had our daughter. And, you know, it didn't stop because we had a child. And we separated and we'd go back together and we'd separate. And then we had our son and we'd separate again. And finally, it was just too much. I mean, I was so in my addiction and so was he, you know, in different types of alcohol, cocaine, whatever, you know. and It's such a tumultuous process
0: when it, you're both coming from that side of addiction.
1: It is. And it's, it's, you know, it's very difficult. I mean, there wasn't enough sober time in there anywhere to express or even know how you felt, you know. So we ended up divorcing, and I ended up down here in Arizona. Um, And I ended up here with my high school buddy, who I used to drink with, so it was on like Donkey Kong again here. Minder Binders. (laughs) Woo-hoo! We'd close that place down many times. And um, so that addiction continued. And, you know, when I was 19, the reason I got a DUI was because I was— Supposed to stop at a red light, and I didn't, and I hit the car in front of me and shot him through the intersection, and there was a cop right next to me, so I got arrested. Well, I one-upped myself 10 years later, and in an intersection, I rear-ended the cop Oh lord! and shot him through the intersection. So I, I was in a blackout. I had gone to Cottonwood to exercise some of those demons that I had from my childhood and was drunk, drunk, drunk. I don't know how I made it back here. Well, I always think it was God. And he just kind of pushed me into this cop. I was in a blackout. The first thing I remember is kind of coming out of it and seeing him just shaking his head because I had already hit him and he was going to do the, the test, the whatever, what are they called? The DUI test. Yeah. It's um, sobriety. Yes. (laughs) I said, yeah, no, I'm really drunk. Just take me now. Yep. And they did. And, um, But that kind of started uh, a little bit of me seeing that I had an issue. So I didn't drink alcohol for 15 years. So but I'm here to tell you, and for all those people that are out there, for me, I can only speak personally for my own experience. I use marijuana as my marijuana maintenance program. And I hear people talk about that. And I hear them chuckle about it. And I'm okay smoking pot, blah, 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 blah. Well, this was quite a few years ago. And the difference in pot then and now is my understanding is is quite a bit. But so it ended up not being enough for me. You know, I couldn't get high enough. I couldn't escape enough because I still haven't dealt with everything. I dealt with a lot of my childhood stuff because when I got that second DUI, part of the course and part of it to get it off my record was to go to counseling. And I had a fantastic counselor. I was supposed to go twelve times. I went three and a half years good to this woman. And she really Helped me with a lot of my shit, but apparently also dug some other shit up that I did not deal with. And um, so I stayed, you know, doing pot. Pretty soon it's not enough. Well, I can't drink because you can smell that. Right. So what else can you do that nobody can smell, but I can get higher? <sighs> Pills. So that started my little adventure into Darviset and Xanax and Soma used to do SOMA and had the best flying dreams ever, you know. Um, so I really got heavily into that stuff. My sister told me one time I was talking to her and I had just taken three SOMA. She almost did a well check on me. She said she thought I had a stroke because I just started slurring so much. And then I just ended the call, you know, because I was so messed up all the time. So backpedal a little bit. Um, And this is probably the hardest part of my story to talk about, but there's a second piece to this part of the story that I really want to share with your listeners um, and maybe really start some other healing processes and help some people think about a little bit of something a little bit different. Very um, controversial kind of thing. But in 1998, my ex-husband had an affair is how I term it right now. And I'll get into why I would say that. Um, But it was to somebody close to the family and she was underage. Oh yeah. So talk about a hit. I get hit not only with that. He's been unfaithful, but with somebody that I know that's underage and by her own mouth, and by one of her friends that came to see me right after everything came out, she, it, she was a consensual partner. Now, here's where part of that controversy comes in, is, is at the age of 16, 17, are you able to consent or not? I mean, we're able to consent to have an abortion. Right. We're able to consent to a lot of stuff at that age but we're not able to consent with making the choice of our sexual partner.
0: We're not mentally capable of understanding a lot of things at that age when it comes to sex.
1: Right. And see, and that's what a lot of people believe, and that's okay. Um, I know for myself, again, with my own experiences, when I was 15 and 16 years old, I did some things in the sexual way that... I don't hold those other people responsible for. I feel like I knew what I was doing. I knew how to manipulate the situation. I knew how to get what I wanted. That's me. That's my story. Um, with these two other pers- with this, the, the girlfriend that came to see me of this other person, um, she told me specifics about how my ex husband had been set up to be, for a lack of a better way to to put it, to be seduced. And it was kind of mind-blowing. And then in speaking to the female, also she told me she was never forced. It was never anything that she didn't want. So there's that part of it. You know, how do you deal with that? So I'm getting told this, I'm already in like a shock place because this is just, totally turned my world upside down. I have a two and a half year old and a baby. Oh my. And I haven't worked outside the home for several years, for three or four years because I'm raising kids and doing this thing. So I have the fear of economic insecurities. I don't know what I'm going to do. I already had other children, my son that's 12, that's living with us too, you know, like What do I do now? And I'm already a fairly sick individual. So I stay in that marriage Mm. for an additional 10 years. And um, try to put things together, as a lot of women and and men do after an uh, affair. Um, But it didn't work out too well for me. And once I started realizing that I wasn't going to be able to do this, you know, that so, so now I'm, I had been sober some because I had found an organized religion that I was very involved in. And that was part of my issue was I was like, I was doing everything. I was instructed. How could this have happened?
0: Because it had nothing to do with you.
1: Right. But But it took me a long time to truly understand that. And even today, as you walk through different parts of peeling this onion back, even today, there are times I do not completely comprehend that, if you will.
0: I don't get how we assume the blame is always on us. And that it tends to fall more for the women than men. But I do know some men that take on that system of blame. But for some reason, we always think we're the ones to blame. Why didn't he love me enough? Why wasn't I good enough? Why did this happen? I'm doing everything in my life to be better as a human being, but yet I still got shit on. What did I do to cause this? And we don't see that when we're in the middle of it. We don't realize that it has absolutely nothing to do with us. We can't, we have to learn not to take it personally. And that is one of the hardest things to ever do as a human being is not take shit personally because we think it has to do with us. We're the ones that are at fault. And our self-esteem gets a brutal ass kicking because of it.
1: Right. And my self-esteem was already in the toilet. Right. Before that happened. So then when that happened, exactly the things that you're saying is exactly what was going through my mind. Why wasn't I enough? Why did he need to seek outside? You know, what happened? Um, Now I know that I was not the only sick one in that little triangle, you know. Um, And it's been a very, very difficult road. And, you know, you think you heal, and then you're not, and then you think you are, and then you're not. So this has been a really convoluted mess for me for 23 years. And, like, how we've talked about um, you, you get better and then you're not. So what happened to me was with the pills and the pot, I ended up in treatment in 2004. And so when I go into this treatment center... I share with my main counselor this part of the story. I do not share in small group. I do not share with anybody at that treatment center. What's really going on. What I did was I reverted back to all that childhood trauma that I had worked with somebody and pretty much was able to not completely put it at rest but but worked with a lot of it. you know, but I brought that back up, and it was. Bad enough that everybody's like, oh, my gosh, yes, that's, that's why she's using drugs and alcohol, blah, 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 blah. And it wasn't that. I was keeping secrets. So our secrets keep us sick. I hear that in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous all the time. And that is so true because I did not share that stuff. So when I went into this particular treatment center, they do this test on you when you go in. Well, when you're supposed to leave, they do the test again. And I was worse leaving than I was when I came in because all I did was dig shit up and leave it totally. I just pulled the scab off and left the sore. So when I left that treatment center, because I said, no, I'm leaving. I'm fine. Blah, blah, blah. Um, I didn't even make it 90 days. I was in IOP. I was using pills again. I make this big confession in IOP. And then before 90 days, now I'm drinking. Because now I've unleashed the dragon with all of that pain and self-esteem issues and beat me up and I'm not enough and I'm not good enough. And all of this stuff just started boiling out. So I started drinking again and I went for a three year ride from hell. I found methamphetamines, you know, on a daily, it was vodka chased by beer. Then at night and some meth first, I had to wake up. And that helped me stay up longer, drink more. So do some meth, do some vodka, do some beer. Oh, it's time to go to sleep. Let me do some Xanax. Let me do some more Darvacet. Let me do some, a whole bunch of pot. See if I can get myself to go to sleep because nobody can know I'm doing this. Everybody knew I was doing it. I was a freaking mess, you know? And um, so that went on for like three years. And remember, I'm still with that husband.
0: Yeah, and still trying to raise children with him as well.
1: Well, he kind of took the kids not away from me, but aside. I had, like, this office, and all my stuff was in there. I isolated from them, but he also shielded the kids from what I was doing the best that he could. But he worked, you know, and he, he worked nights, so he slept a lot of time during the day. But I brutalized this man. Like, I mean, physically, everything I would throw, everything that had been in my guts for all those years, I would throw at him. I said horrific, horrific things to him. Um, and guess what? It didn't help. No. It didn't help me. It didn't help him. And so that's how that whole thing continued. And he actually got in contact with my sisters, who I absolutely adore. He had already tried to do an intervention with him and my older son, and I was like, get out. I don't know who you think you are. And I called my son. I'm like, what are you doing with him, blah, 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 blah. And he's like, Mom, my little brother and little sister deserve to have the mom I did. And I don't know where she is, but she's not here. Wow. Wow. And so I was like, well, whatever. Well, then my sisters show up. And, you know, I had what we call a first-step experience. I surrendered, and I accepted that I was a mess and that I needed help. And so I told them I wouldn't go to treatment here because, remember, that one treatment center here did not get me sober, whatever. And, uh, but I would go in Montana. So they said, okay, and they packed me up, took me up to Montana. I did that night, when the first night I got there, so I'd been drinking on the way there. Now I'm coming down. They do. There's only one treatment center in, in Montana at that time that was residential, and there was adolescents there, and they're graduating the next day, so they're whooping it up, and I'm like, I can't get sober here. There's just too much chaos and commotion. So I'm looking for Greyhound in the phone book, and this guy and two peers come in to talk to me. And I spilt that secret, That night, I told them all exactly what I was going through and howled and cried and carried on. And I ended up staying there. And that guy was new to this treatment center. And I said, I want him for my counselor. They're like, well, he hasn't had any clients. I said, I don't care.
0: Well, you spilled your secret to him. Yep. You already had that confidentiality thing going
1: on. Right. And I, whatever he said to me that night, It stuck with me. And so I worked with this man, and he was so good to me, and he helped me with so much, you know, and I worked my ass off in that treatment center, and I was judged, and I was put down. I had people walk out of the room while I was trying to share because they didn't want to hear what I had to say because my pain was not valid in their eyes because I was saying that the, the female part of this affair had some part of it. And they're like, no, absolutely not. She did not. You can't think that way, blah, blah, blah. So I had one girl that would leave. And I had to let that be okay. You know, but that kind of stuff sticks with you. Obviously, all these years later, I'm talking about it because it sticks with me.
0: Sure. We're all afraid to be judged. But when you finally get to the point where you just don't give a shit anymore, what people think, that is definitely a level of freedom that takes so much of that crap off of your back and you don't worry about it. That's why when we do this show, as I was telling you off the air, I don't give a damn what anybody thinks. If they don't like the subject we're talking about, they have every right to turn it off. Right. But this show is geared towards the subjects that we are afraid to talk about, but we need to because so many people fear judgment. And we're all human beings. We've all been in the shitter one time or another. We've all done something to hurt other people. We've all been hurt. Hurt people hurt people. And the only way to get past that is to start the dialogue and open up those terrible, nasty, effing wounds that we all deal with and just let it go. We have to heal ourselves so that we become better for not only us, but for other people around. Because you and I have been in those trenches. We have hurt people. We have said things that are not so nice. And we've had those Not-so-nice things said to us, and we've been looked at with a microscope, and people have judged us. But I look at it this way. We're not going to be for everybody, but we can't change who we are. We have to be 100% who we are, and if they don't like it, they can leave. That's the freedom they have is to leave. They don't have to listen. They don't have to see us. We have to see ourselves, and that's the most important thing in all of the journey that we're on is in order to get through this shit, we have to see ourselves for who we really are, and I commend you for sitting here and actually taking responsibility for the way that you actually treated him, because I'm sure he wasn't so nice to you either. I understand what those toxic relationships are, and it does breed toxicity between both parties. You may be good people on your own, but when you're together, it is extremely toxic. And for you to actually take that responsibility, that is a, that's commendable, because a lot of people won't take responsibility. They want to blame everything else on everyone else.
1: And, you know, with him, I did that for a long time. And I have to say, we've been divorced since 2009. So when I was in treatment, he had actually filed for divorce, said he didn't know he did that, blah, blah, whatever. God took care of it. We got divorced. Um, he was never anything but good to me. Like when I stayed in Montana for a year and I decided to come back, he was the one who flew up and drove back my U-Haul. You know, he, for whatever tremendously huge, awful mistake that he made. He did everything in his power to make a living amends. But mind you now, he's a sex offender. Yeah. He's a sex offender. He has to register. All this stuff has happened because of what he did. So whether there's a price or whatever, he has definitely done his best to make a living amends, not just to me, but both of his kids. And he has done probation. He's never been violated, any of that stuff. Um, He's done 20 years of therapy. But because of the way he already felt about himself, this thing was like, I'm a piece of shit, and look what I did. I just proved it. So I don't need to beat him up. He beats himself up every waking moment of every single day. And maybe that's, that's his cross to bear, if you will. Yeah. Mine's the other flip side of that. And, you know, as, so, so I get sober and I come back and I'm doing my program and I'm doing stuff and I'm trying to walk through this and I'm thinking I want to have a relationship at about two years sober and I meet this guy and we kind of move in and I'm like, yeah, that's, that's not what I want. So I dissolve that relationship and I get back into a relationship with my ex-husband. And he treats me fine. You know, he he is very, very good to me. But what I found recently is that I put myself into a vicious cycle because that wasn't the first time I did that. So I... I'm getting to the point where I can just accept that I love him. He made a colossal mistake, but I love him, but I cannot be with him. It is too painful for me knowing what I know, knowing the things and the ways that I was manipulated for them to be able to be together, you know, is and both manipulation on on both parts, on both parties on different things they would do and say so that they would have time to be alone, and to be together. And I, when the whole thing started, I insisted that I needed the details. And anybody out there that gets into any kind of situation like this, you do not need the details. No. Because that is what eats away at my core on a daily, is all those details I know.
0: It attacks the self-esteem even more so because then you do more questioning, why would you feel the need to do that when you're in this relationship with me? It's my fault. Again, we're taking that blame on ourselves because it doesn't make sense other than to blame ourselves. We can't look at the two of them and blame them because we're the one that drove him to do
1: it. Right. And, And, you know, I got, I got in my recovery process with this codependency thing I have, I got pretty sick in 2015. You know, I've not, needed to drink or to drug since 2008 it has not been about that for me it has been about my behaviors and my self-esteem issues and all of these things the codependency all of that stuff that I've been working on after I got you know through the the, the cravings and all of those kind of things about the drugs and alcohol so in 2015 I get pretty sick and it's because I'm, I'm working at Crossroads by then the most fabulous thing they have saved my ass more times than I can even count. So I get sick in 2015 and I go to one of the upper management and I have found a place for compassion fatigue syndrome. And I'm like, I need to go to this place. I'm going to go. I need the week off. And they came through and they said, you go and we're going to pay for it.
0: That's awesome.
1: And so I went in Kentucky And I did this week long. It was like being in crossroads. I had to chuckle because they took my phone. We couldn't be, we had to leave in threes. And you know, when I get there, I find out that it's deep trauma therapy. And I'm like, that is not why I came here. Again, I'm on my way out, but I'm out in the middle of the sticks. There's no way to get out of there. And the therapist said, honey, honey. Let's just trust the process. And I just Uh, wanted to punch her, but I didn't. Yeah, And I stayed, and I did that. And it was amazing. I really got to walk through and work through some things. So then I go back. I get back in a relationship with Joel. Sucks the life out of me. 2017, I go with two of the women's from the first one to um, Boise, or no, to Portland, I do more another week of this therapy. I go back. I'm good for a little bit there. And then in 2019, just because we were working on this process together, I go back with these two. So the counselor and these two women again, we do more therapy. And then I let Joe back in, and I feel the life draining out of me again. And so I had to really stop at that point and look at... What was happening to me and why was I continuing to do this? And I want to read a passage out of The Language of Letting Go by Melody Beatty. Because this right here changed the way I was thinking about stuff. So my son, my younger son, was still living at home because he was training to go into the military. And so on March 22nd, he left to go to the military. My younger daughter had gotten married so now I'm an empty nester. Right. Now I realize that I can do whatever I need to do to heal in my house because I didn't realize that I had shut everything down so much because I didn't want to hurt my children any more than they'd already been hurt. Their life has not been pretty either. you know. And so I did not want to hurt them. So when he left and I started realizing that I could... Howl and scream and cry and carry on. And I didn't owe anybody an explanation. I said, What's wrong, mom? Oh my gosh, are you okay? I didn't have to do any of that. Um, on a Saturday morning, I woke up at like four o'clock and I sobbed nonstop, used like a whole box of Kleenex, snot flying everywhere, <laughs> you know, just one of those deep howls. Soul cry. Soul cry. From the very pits of my soul and let some of that stuff out and started realizing that I needed help and I got in touch with the therapist right away and stuff. But then on April 3rd, I was reading out of this book and it says, We make life harder by resisting and repressing our feelings. No matter how dark, how uncomfortable, how unjustified, how surprising, how inappropriate we might deem our feelings. Resisting and repressing them will not free us from them. Doing that will make them worse. They will swirl inside of us, torment us, make us sick, make our body ache, compel us to do compulsive things, keep us awake, or put us to sleep. In the final analysis, all that we're really called on to do is accept our feelings by feeling them and saying, yes, this is what I feel. So what I got from that is this. The inappropriate part really struck me because for all these years I've been told by society, by other people, by counselors that what I feel about that situation is inappropriate. You can't feel that way. You shouldn't feel what that way. That's wrong. She was a victim. You're victim blaming. You're this, you're that. And so I would say, oh my gosh, and I would stuff it, stuff it, stuff it, because society and other therapists that I had gone to were telling me, you can't feel that way. This book, that paragraph, gave me permission to feel the, all, whatever people think, the inappropriate, if you will, feelings I was feeling, the, the anger, the mistrust the whatever that I had not, because I had dealt with a lot of stuff with him and I still have more to deal with today, but nobody had ever allowed me to heal from her part in it because people kept saying she has no part. She was a victim. She's this, she's that, but this is the thing is that those are my feelings. I was the one that was told by her and other people numerous accounts of how She perpetuated this relationship, but because I was told it was not okay to feel that and to think about that, then I didn't, and I stuffed, and I stuffed, and I stuffed, and I got sick, and I would try to get well, and then I would get sick, never really realizing what was actually going on with me and that that was a part of my trauma that nobody would allow me to get into and heal. And it's not just me. My younger daughter, just in the last maybe six weeks, was in a therapy group, and she was shamed and re-traumatized.
0: I just don't get that. I don't understand why people feel the need to shame others. And a lot of times it's projection because they themselves are going through something that they refuse to release those secrets about. So instead of releasing their own secrets and dealing with their own shit, they rather attack someone else and project crap onto them. And that kind of stuff has just got to stop because how are we supposed to solve anything if we're not even allowed to deal? And you have every right to feel the way you feel about a situation. You know, I'm not perfect. I've hurt people. And again, hurt people, hurt people. We do things that we have to take responsibility for. None of us are perfect. And You know, even when I was a teenager, I was afraid to flaunt myself. I was scared, but I went to school with a lot of girls that did. And just because we may not be in the right mindset as a teenager does not mean that we have to shuck the responsibility. We're just as responsible for our behavior. It takes two people. He didn't rape her. No. He didn't molest her. No. So he's not 100% at fault. And I've seen it so many times. I, I worked in the music industry. I've seen it all throughout my life working in the entertainment industry where older guys are with younger girls that are underage. And a lot of girls in the concert scenes, and this is going to sound bad, but I'm not victim shaming either. They're not victims. I've been a victim. I've been raped. You've been sexually assaulted and raped. You understand the difference between putting yourself out there and having sex with someone who's older. My first husband, he was five years older than me when I had sex with him. I was 15. He was 20. He'd be in jail. Yeah, he would have been in jail. He's a sex offender. Right. But I married him when I was one month shy of my 18th birthday. And I was with him for a while. So, I mean, just the idea that, you know, an older man could have sex with a girl underage, she has to take responsibility for it too. And she did. And for someone to say that your feelings are not validated, that they shouldn't be, that's absolute bullshit. Because... Those are your feelings. It was two people who had an affair and cheated on you. It was both of them because it takes two. It's not just him. It's her as well. It's 50-50 blame. They both slept together. They had a relationship. It was not an assault. It wasn't a one-time thing. So your feelings should be validated. And for people to sit and shame anyone, you, your daughter, any one of us, that's just absolute bullshit. We need to get past that crap of shaming others especially when we're asking them to deal with their crap and to heal. Again, hurt people, hurt people. We need to start moving forward with the dialogue and allowing people to have that safe space to say what they need to to purge that shit from their soul because they're going to continue to do damage to themselves and to others around them if they aren't allowed that space to let go of the shame because the shame holds us prisoner. You know that. I know that. So many people who listen to this show understand that part of shame, and some people get to the point where the shame is just so much that no one listens, that they do things, they find a permanent solution, and no one should be put in that spot. there There should be light shed on the darkness because no one no one should have to feel like they're not important enough to be heard. We have to listen, we have to hear. We have to get past the fact of shaming people because it's just bullshit every single one of us has experienced something and I don't care someone can walk past me with their nose up in the air shaming me for something I guarantee you there's shit in their closet too let's open it up and see what's going on with you let's reveal what's hiding behind your closed doors and I guarantee you you've probably been through some of the shit that some of us have you're just not willing to face it or talk about it because you're too afraid of judgment and that shit's gotta stop
1: and see, and that's, that's what I'm saying. For all these years, I was afraid to talk about that because that's what I was told is I was victim-blaming and doing this kind of stuff, but it wasn't about the victim. It wasn't even about him. It was about me and how do I heal? How can I get this stuff out and look at it and maybe come to the same conclusion that you're saying to me? But I can't because you won't let me walk through the process. And now they're doing it to my younger daughter that she's not able to walk through the process, that she's shut down, she's shamed, she's re-traumatized because she doesn't feel exactly how this therapist thinks she should feel, then give her the opportunity to walk through this stuff and maybe she's going to come to that conclusion. We don't ever know because we have not, I can only talk about she and I, have not been given the opportunity until now to really be able to look at that. So I have a therapist now who has kind of been through this thing with my ex-husband and myself that I think she was just waiting for me to come to this on my own. And now I've contacted her and I said, I need help because this is what's going on with me. And she's like, yep. And so she's walking me through the process. And she has also talked to the victim of this whole little thing and she believes that she did have a part in it. Now, she can't, I will never reveal her name because I can't even imagine what other therapists would do to her for saying, you know what, and she's talked to her in private that I know nothing about. So whatever was said in there had her come to at least a partial conclusion that she did have a part in this thing, that it's not just the ex-husband. And the other counselor that I had that knew her also said the same thing. So I don't know. I'm not privy to those conversations. I don't want to be privy to that. But what I am saying is give me an opportunity to heal. Give my younger daughter an opportunity to heal. Let us look at this. Let us say what we need to say. Let us feel what we need to feel. Let us cry when we need to cry. And maybe we're going to come full circle and we're going to see it in a different way. But for all these years, I feel like we've been forced by judgment and society and people who won't allow us to talk about this to just keep shutting it down, shutting it down, shutting it down. And I will no longer do this. This paragraph in this book gave me permission to feel the darkness, to feel the inappropriateness, if you will, of how I feel. And I need to get past that Whatever happens, I don't know what it's going to look like. What I do know is that when my son left, and I was left in that house and able to start walking through this process, I flipped all the way back to 23 years ago and got trauma triggered, and it's been horrible. It's been horrible. But at least now, I can see a little pinpoint of brightness because this therapist is allowing me to say what I need to say, to feel what I need to feel, to write what I need to write. Whether it's right or wrong or whatever, it does not matter. It's still the way I feel, and it hurts, and it's been hurting for many, many years. And so I just want to plead to people to stop judging the secondary victim. Why are we, why is it okay to victim blame us?
0: And let's change the rhetoric on this, too. She's not a victim. She is a person that took an active part in a sexual relationship with a married man. Plain and simple. She's not a victim. Right. She made the choice to sleep with a married man, regardless of how old she was. She made the choice. And she owned up to it. She even explained it to you. She owned up to it. And that's the bottom line. She's not a victim. Because to me, a victim, you're the victim. The children are the victim. Because their father and your husband had an affair them two are not victims there are two people who made a choice to have a sexual relationship regardless of the ages or the age difference they cheated on you and the family that's plain and simple to me I see it plain and clear and if anybody wants to judge on that that's just too bad you know I understand that I've been in relationships with married men that I've ended those relationships because I did not know they were married as soon as I found out they were I was done because that to me is just bullshit. I don't yep. want to be that, in that position of being the one that's cheated on. I've had enough people cheat on me. It's not fun. But again, that girl was not a victim. She was not sexually assaulted. She was not raped. She was in a relationship with a married man. And it wasn't a one-time deal. It was something that was going on regardless of how old she is. But being a teenager, I've been there myself. You've been there. Again, we don't think about the, the consequences, we like the idea that right. we're getting attention. So, you know, that's what I mean by not being in the right mindset. You don't understand that you're disrupting a family. Right. You like the fact that this older guy is paying attention to you. I had that when I was in my teenage years. I was the fat little frumpy kid who grew up to be the swan at 13 and 14. I had everybody coming out of the woodwork. It scared the shit out of me. I didn't understand that. And yeah, a lot of those were married guys wanting to have an affair with me. And I'm, I'm like, no. No no, I'm scared of sex. I'm scared of all this. I'm too young. But there are girls that like the attention and they do cross that line. They make that decision to be intimate with a married guy. And that's something that, you know, that's a choice. That's a choice. I don't call her a victim. I just call her a person that had an affair with a married man who was victimized was the wife finding out there was an affair. Plain and simple. Doesn't matter how old anybody is in this you he had an affair on you. And mm-hmm. that's that destroys trust. That goes after your self worth. That that goes, wait a second, I have kids by you. What the hell are you doing sleeping around? What are you doing? This is causing disruption in our family. And being that you come from an, an addict background, and so does he, that just adds fuel to the fire. That that right. just tears everything apart. And I can't even imagine what that was like for you going through that and then having people shut you down and saying, don't talk about it like that. Don't talk about it. She's a victim. No, she's not a victim. She is a person that had an affair with a married man. That's the bottom line.
1: Right. And, you know, I'm, I'm starting to slowly get to that point of being able to get into acceptance about that and walk through this piece of the trauma and tear apart these little things of when the manipulation was used for them to be together and stuff like that. And... It's been difficult, and it just breaks my heart when I hear my daughter trying to heal, too. And she called me crying. I was on the phone with her until eleven thirty one one night because the therapist that she had kind of started trying to work with just totally shamed her and re-traumatized her because she should not feel the way that she feels. And I just, I can't get behind that. And, I mean, I get it working at at Flower at Crossroads Flower for so long and hearing so many women's stories of and my own about sexual abuse and that kind of stuff it is hard to understand you know this other side of of this coin and we're often left just standing there with nowhere to turn you know and for nobody to believe us and i understand how difficult it is for people to come forward with their sexual trauma. I do. I get it. But at some point we've swung that pendulum so far to the one side that how can other people ever be able to heal when we have such a warped sense of some of this stuff.
0: Right. And then they find themselves in relationships with others and it causes, that pattern continues and it causes more damage because I have a former friend who has an issue with alcohol. He's an alcoholic, and he just got out of a marriage. And now he's on Match.com, not even a month after he's divorced. And he told me two months ago that he couldn't be around me because of my traumatic background and and the way that he acts because he's an alcoholic and he's got so much buried trauma that he's afraid of hurting me physically. So he distanced himself from me a couple months ago, and a girlfriend found him on Match.com just recently. And I'm like wait a second, I thought he needed to heal first before he could be around someone of the opposite sex. It doesn't have anything to do with me, but it's the idea that now he's going to continue that pattern again. I gave him the space as his friend, and I've not spoken to him in two months, but he's already out there looking for another woman to be with. you got to give yourself time to heal after your divorce. He needs at least a year off. Anybody does. You've got to give yourself at least a year to heal, especially if you're still in love with the person you were married to. Yes. And it was a destructive relationship for you. You need to heal. you got to give yourself time. And there's so much buried trauma within this person that he's going to attach it. I know a lot of his trauma history, and I tried to be that friend. I tried to be that sounding board, and I was for a while but he needed space and i granted him that space but now i see what's going to happen and i can't say anything it's not my place but i feel bad for any of the women that he dates because he's not ready for that he's still in love with the ex-wife for one and for two there's so much trauma that's below the surface that comes out and it just it saddens me because the alcohol when he he's contacted me many times when he's drunk and he's spilled a lot of stuff And I just don't like to see wreckage. I don't like to see people continuing to hurt other people. And he's in therapy, which is great. But how do you not take time off from being around other people and give yourself that space to heal, especially when you're out of that marriage, but you go right out there and start meeting new people. This is why I always say that hurt people, hurt people. And the process continues. I'm wreckage from my last marriage. And my ex-husband can't even admit to himself that he has a sexual identity crisis. But instead, he put me through 11 years of gaslighting hell and verbal abuse. And I got free of that six years ago. But yet he's with another woman again. And it's not where his mindset is. He cannot come to grips with who he really is. He's still hiding those secrets. And I just don't get why people are so afraid to work on healing themselves. They would rather just numb it. They would rather just continue the process of hurting other people. And I, myself, spend a lot of time working on myself. I still do. It took till I was 52 to finally realize that I love myself completely. I mean, that's that's huge. That is huge. But I can easily walk away from anyone that threatens my self-love and my self-worth. And that's where we have to get to. It is a hard fucking journey. You know this, Donna. Yes. It's, you're still in the midst of it. So am I. And there are things that we, just with my father dying recently, you know, I let everyone say their goodbyes to him. And they're like, well, what about you? I don't need that shit. I can communicate with the dead. I know this is an awesome gift to have. So after my father died, I spent three hours one night and I said, guess what? You shut me up when you were alive. You don't get that opportunity now, and I don't want to fucking hear from you. So do not say a word, because I know I can hear you, but I don't want to hear you. Don't come around me. And I spent three hours letting my soul cry, and I healed my inner child right there, because that man was not a good father to me. He was not a good father to any of his children. He had eight children, six from the first marriage, two from the second. He treated all of us like crap, like we didn't exist and he dismissed me at 17 after I got raped saying, I deserved it. So from that point on, I never, had, never really had a father. But I healed myself last month completely. That inner child got healed because I finally had the chance to tell him exactly what needed to be said. And I had the hugest soul cry I've ever had. You and I were talking about that just like your experience. We don't realize what holding all of that shit in does to us. We can have physical manifestations of the emotional conflict that's hidden below the surface. A lot of times that's where cancer comes from because of all that stress and all that shit that we hold in. And therapists, I'm going to tell you this. If there's anybody who's a therapist out there, do me a favor. You have one mouth and two ears. Shut the fuck up and listen to your client. Allow them that space. And I'm sorry if I'm brutal here, But when I was raped, I had a therapist at at the rape center tell me, I know what you're going through. I know how you feel. I said, wait a minute. Have you ever been raped? No. Then how the fuck could you know what I'm going through? And I said, you're not in my heart. You're not in my head. You don't have a clue how I feel. So don't sit across from me and be that condescending to me and tell me, you know exactly how I feel because you don't. Even though we have relatable experiences, you and me, Donna, and everyone else, It doesn't mean we know exactly how that person feels or what they're going through. And I really hate when anybody tells me, I know what you're going through. No, you don't know what I'm going through. Again, relatable experiences is one thing, but you need to listen. Sometimes people don't want to hear your shit. They want you to listen. Provide that safe space for them. And therapists, please, please, please stop putting the rhetoric on the people saying, You're not entitled to feel that way. You shouldn't feel that way. That is not your job. I don't care about your degree on the wall. Be a human being for once in your life and allow that person to have that safe space. And just shut up and listen. Because it is so important for us to purge this garbage so that we can not only heal ourselves, but so that we don't continue to cause wreckage in someone else's life or our own especially when it comes to our children. They're the most important things moving forward because we have to set that bar and show them that just because all this shit happened to me doesn't mean it has to happen to you. You don't have to be in the midst of my shitstorm. You can have a better life than I did. Let's work on that together. Let's have that dialogue. Let's talk about it. So please, therapists, if you're listening to this, do me a favor again. listen. And do not disregard somebody with their feelings. Don't tell them they're not entitled to feel that way because each one of us is a human being and we're entitled to feel exactly how we feel. Whether you believe it's right or wrong, you have no right to judge anybody. We have no right to judge anybody in this lifetime. That's not our job. Our job is to be here and be human beings to each other. And that's the bottom line about it.
1: Absolutely. I agree. You know, I just want opportunities for everybody in this situation to be able to heal and for everybody to say how they feel and to be able to walk their own journey, their own path. My daughter has a path to walk. Let her do that. You know, my son, so she's not an addict or an alcoholic. She's never touched anything in her life. My son, who's now in in the military, got clean and sober when he was 17 In this August, if he continues doing what he's doing now, he'll have eight years. Wow. Sobriety. So those chains can be broken. You know, the abuse and and all of those kind of things. I did not abuse my children the way that I was abused. I'm not going to sit here and tell you I never swatted them when they were little. But I can't remember the last time. Neither can they. You know, but I remember when I was done that way. So these chains can be broken and people can heal. But not if therapists, society, other people who are so judgmental don't allow us to walk the path that we need to walk to get to that side. And it doesn't mean that we're always going to feel the way that we feel right now. I might not feel this way as I continue on this journey, and I may come to a different conclusion at the end of it. I don't know. But what I do know is whether they're inappropriate or dark or unjustified or whatever, these are my feelings. Allow me to do it. These are my daughter's feelings. Allow her to feel it. Let us heal and quit judging us because we don't feel how you think we should. We are victims. We did not have anything to do with this whole fucking mess. Let us heal, please.
0: Let us be the survivors we were meant to be so that we can not only survive but thrive. Absolutely. Ah. <sighs> Donna, I can't tell you how thankful I am that you were here today to share your story with everybody.
1: Thank you, Robin. I was glad to be here. I I have to tell you, like we said before, Er, I was a, a little apprehensive to share this because it is to many people so dark and so inappropriate and everything else. And I'm not trying to blame anyone else. I'm not trying to... Say that this female was completely to blame. She wasn't. He had a huge part in it too. And maybe because he was older, he is more culpable than she is. I can own that. I can say he's 80%. But that 20% that she had a part in, let me heal from that too. You know, and let everybody in this whole entire situation heal from that. Quit telling us that it's wrong.
0: Wow. You know, you're a beautiful human being. And I'm proud to call you a friend. You inspire me every time you come in and do your show, Recovery On Air. You bring people forward who share their tough stories. And it just really opens my eyes. I've I've seen so many people in the trenches through the years and have lost a lot of people because they just couldn't handle it anymore and they checked out. And mm-hmm. I've seen you bring forth a lot of people so far that have just continued and you know, we all relapse, whether it's addiction or we fall prey to something stupid because we don't pay attention and we don't trust our own selves and our our guts. But, you know, I'm I'm really grateful that I've had the opportunity to get to know you and to actually sit across from you now and look at you and call you a friend.
1: And me as well. You've been such a huge part in this whole little part of my journey. And to be able to come and Know that I could share with you what I just did and know you're not going to judge me and that you're going to support me and you're still going to be my friend. I can't tell you how much that means because there's going to be a lot of people out there that are not going to feel that way. And you know what? Like you said, I, could, I don't care anymore. Yep. I Screw need to that. heal so you can think whatever you want to think. You can feel however you want to feel. But allow me that same to feel how I feel. Beautiful.
0: That's the best way to end this. And I got to tell you guys listening out there, I know you fear judgment. I know you're worried about what others think of you, but here's the the thing that's the most important look in the mirror. That's the only person you should give a damn about judging you. Stop doing this harmful stuff to yourself by allowing others' judgment to take you down that dark road. You don't deserve that. Happiness is an inside job, you are the only person that can give that to yourself. Stop worrying so much about what others think of you. When you stop worrying about that, it's definitely a great level of freedom. So just tell them, hey, kiss my ass. This is who I am. And if you can't handle it, oh, well, that's life. As always, guys, thanks for listening. Take care and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Get Real with Robin. Join Robin Cote and her co-hosts, known as The Collective, each week as they delve into subject matters most are afraid to talk about but really need to hear. Join us next week here on Star Worldwide Networks as we continue to get real.